0: today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight.
1: Because an immunocompromised patient, regardless of what is causing their immune suppression, uh, can develop a number of different infections, sometimes more than one at the same time. So they are susceptible to a large number of infections, including RSV.
0: Today, Drs. Jamie Rutland and Edward Dominguez joined the podcast to discuss RSV in immunocompromised adults in this PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight.
2: Hello, I'm Dr. Jamie Rutland, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Southern California, the CEO and medical director of West Coast Lung.
1: I am Edward Dominguez. I'm a medical physician in Dallas, Texas, at Methodist Dallas Medical Center at Methodist Transplant Physicians.
2: Welcome, Edward. It's so great to meet you and speak to you today. Thanks, Jamie. It's good to be here. So today, Edward, what I really want to talk about is I want to talk about Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, in the immunocompromised adults, including transplant patients. So for me, can you talk a little bit about the challenges in diagnosing RSV in the immunocompromised adults or adults in general and how these can be overcome? And what diagnostic tools are available and how effective are they in this population?
1: The challenge in diagnosing these infections, Jamie, is, uh, is huge in immunocompromised patients because an immunocompromised patient, regardless of what is causing their immune suppression, uh, can develop a number of different infections, sometimes more than one at the same time. So they are susceptible to a large number of infections, including RSV. Uh, there's also a difficult challenge in that many of these infections cause very similar symptoms so that we're not always clued in by the symptom complex as to which infection a patient may have. So we have to rely on diagnostic testing. And fortunately, we can now use multiplex uh, nucleic acid amplification tests on respiratory specimens, whether they're from alveolar lavage specimens or sputum specimens in order to look for several viruses at the same time, including RSV. And many tertiary care centers and transplant centers have this technology available. Now, there are blood tests that have been used to diagnose RSV infection, but unfortunately these are not used for management of acute cases. The problem there has been that the antibody response may be limited or blunted in people who are immune suppressed. There have also been antigen tests that, while useful in pediatric populations, they don't appear to be nearly as useful in an adult population, and so we don't use those as well. And then finally, the gold standard for almost every infection, Jamie, is a culture, but we don't use cultures because of how much time it takes to to do the cultures, and consequently, this is not a technology that is routinely utilized for the diagnosis of RSV.
2: Yeah, you know, I really love those tests because, again, in my experience as a pulmonary critical care physician and literally last night, when a patient presents and the symptoms of respiratory viruses are really similar amongst all the respiratory viruses, but being able to distinguish between whether or not it's RSV, SARS-CoV-2, influenza is extremely important because of the therapies that we have for two out of the three of those viruses. So... When you think about RSV in general, in your experience, how does RSV differ in the immunocompromised population versus the regular adults that have a competent immune system?
1: That's a a good question, and one that is not always very easy to answer. The immune-compromised population, for example, does not typically show as much of a fever response to the usual infections that cause fever, things like influenza, which is notorious for causing high fevers, but it may not necessarily do so in a transplant patient or a cancer patient. Consequently, we have to try to use other types of symptoms, the the clinical course, And probably the most important thing, Jamie, is that these infections with RSV occur during respiratory tract season. So typically it's been an October through April type of season in the United States. That's varied quite a bit here during the pandemic when we saw very erratic outbreaks of RSV around the country during the summertime when we would not normally expect it. So it made challenging the diagnosis in these individuals because we didn't expect to see RSV in those particular seasons. Nonetheless, we don't routinely see fever with RSV. We can see uh, infiltrates or abnormalities that look like pneumonia in both lungs at the same time, which can be true of the other viruses as well. But oftentimes, we have to go back to the patient's family and find out if they've been exposed to something within the family, and oftentimes, we know that one member of the family had a particular respiratory virus, let's say RSV in a child, and then an adult transplant patient comes in, we feel very strongly at that point RSV is likely to be the culprit in their infection.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the words that I take issue with is this word immunocompromised, because we act like this word means just one thing, but there are several examples of people who are immunocompromised, but their immunodeficiency is secondary to different things. So you have patients that have chemotherapy, right, and you're killing sort of those neutrophils and those cells that fight infection. You have patients that have HIV in which those helper T cells are infected by a virus and don't work as well. And then you have patients that have undergone transplant and are on different types of medications that suppress their immune system. So do you see a difference in those types of individuals? What I mean by that is what's causing their immunosuppression? Is there a difference between those specific types of patients?
1: That's, that's important. And yes, there can be a difference, particularly when it comes to transplant patients. When we're looking at solid organ or bone marrow or stem cell transplant patients, we notice that there are two groups, Jamie, in the transplant population that are more likely to get RSV infections during a community outbreak of RSV. And those are the hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients and the lung transplant recipients, and the latter makes sense because the the target organ of infection is the pulmonary system. For the other solid organ recipients, excluding maybe the heart, we don't see nearly as much RSV, although we do from time to time in that population. With regards to HIV, since many patients are very well controlled on their antiretroviral therapy, just being HIV positive does not any longer appear to be a risk factor. It's frankly the people that have uncontrolled HIV or have AIDS with a very low CD4 count and a significant viral load who are more likely to become infected and develop advanced disease with RSV. And then, when we're talking about cancer patients, it's going to be those individuals who are receiving usually some type of ablative or very aggressive chemotherapy, oftentimes for leukemias, lymphomas, or lung, infect- or lung cancers. And in those situations, we're more likely to think of and see RSV, and it progresses more rapidly in those populations.
2: So. When you look at these patients as a whole, and I'm talking immunocompromised patients, and again, as much as I hate to say that word, I'm talking about those individuals that have undergone chemotherapy. I'm talking about those individuals that have HIV. I'm talking about those individuals that are taking immunosuppression to not allow their immune system to reject organs. What strategies do you use to prevent RSV infection?
1: Well, the most important thing is trying to inform and educate the patients to minimize their potential exposure outside uh, in the community. But barring that, there's not really much that we have available to us. There is a particular prophylaxis that has been approved for pediatrics, but has not been approved for adults. And so there are reports of it's being used, but they're only case reports. And at this point, we can't routinely recommend the use Uh, of palivizumab for this particular uh, purpose. There are other ways, at least in the transplant population, that we can decrease the risk a little bit, and that's by adjusting the doses uh, or even eliminating the dose of one of their immune-suppressive agents. It's in a class called the anti-metabolites. Classic drug in there might be azathioprine or mycophenolate. Uh, And those particular drugs can either be reduced in dose or completely stopped without having to wean them in order to decrease the possibility of RSV in a, a period of high risk for an individual.
2: Yeah, within my specialty of practice, I see a lot, and I mean a lot. That's basically all my clinic is interstitial lung disease, which is autoimmune lung disease. I use a lot of azathioprine and mycophenolate mofetil. And so that is, RSV is one of those viruses that I really think about like, oh my gosh, it's flu season, it's you know v- respiratory viral season, And you really think about, is there a possibility I can come down on this medication to allow their immune system the appropriate response? One of the things I like to think about as a pulmonologist is when you look at RSV, and once it infects the lungs, the cytokines that are activated are actually very similar to the cytokines that lead to asthma exacerbation. I'm talking interleukin-4, I'm talking interleukin-5, TSLP, interleukin-33. And as a result, these adults that present with RSV infection, as I had one present literally last night in the ICU, they have a lot of wheezing, they have a lot of coughing, they have a lot of shortness of breath and mucus production. And it's unfortunate that there is not an acute therapy that we give routinely in the ER, in the ICU to treat this virus. Because quite frankly, like you just mentioned, we just don't have that data to support it in adults, even though the burden of disease in adults is on the order of influenza. Um, Edward, I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely wonderful. It's been really great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: And that's today's episode of The Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PB Roundup Podcast. For more stories like this, visit us at pbroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, What's My Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Jamie Rutland and Dr. Edward Dominguez, and to Sean Mullen and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.